Because the people that you work with in your 20s are going to, you know, go through their career and become managers and executive producers and hosts of programs and anchors of shows. I've seen that happen all around me. Almost everybody that is now anchoring a major show in this city, I know them personally. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to yet another episode of Her Defined. I hope you are all doing well. Today's episode is a wonderful combination of freelance and financial advice. Are you ready to start saving money? Are you ready to stop the toxic spending? Yes, I'm calling out every single one of you who probably bought their body weight and clothes this past year because I know I did and all of my friends did too. Do you want to hear about why women-owned businesses were hit the hardest during the pandemic? I mean, I can't really say any that surprises me, but our guest today is giving us the reasons why. Rabina Ahmed Hawk is a personal finance expert. She says she lives at the intersection of journalism, finance, and public speaking. Rabina's passion for all things money started at a young age and was shaped by her parents. Their money-saving ways stuck and built the foundation of her work today. For 20 years, she's been reporting news and stories with the likes of CBC, Global News, CTV, Yahoo Finance, and others. In this episode, we are talking about Rubina's number one piece of financial advice she wished she knew earlier. She's diving into the gender pay gap and shifting the narrative that understanding money is difficult. We get Rubina's take on cryptocurrencies and if it's even worth it. And she finally tells us how we can put a stop to the toxic spending and successfully pay off our debt. Let's go back in time to a young Rubina when you were still living with, and as you describe your frugal parents, and in what ways did they teach you the value of money and why is it such a passion of yours today? Well, my parents are pretty typical uh, immigrants to Canada. Like they had, my dad, uh, uh, he's retired now, but he's an urban planner. And so he had a pretty good job with the, the government. But a lot of people don't realize that when you come to a new country from, especially a poorer country, my parents came from Pakistan, um, there's often a responsibility that you are going to spend part of your paycheck home. And so I refer to that as the immigrant tax. And so my dad and mom both worked full time. And so they not only had to take care of us, they also had to send money back home for uh, their family members who couldn't find work because the economy there wasn't doing well or because they didn't have access to whatever jobs that they were trying to do, whatever their situation was. And even if when they made money, they obviously could not make as much money as my parents could make here. And so that really made them quite frugal. So everything we bought, whether it was groceries or a vacation or a car or anything, they always looked at value before anything else. Like how much value can I get out of this bag of oranges? Is it cheaper at another grocery store? I'm willing to go there to get, you know, 10% less where, I mean, I'm fortunate, I guess, I mean, for lack of a better word, I'm fortunate enough now, I don't have to think that way. Time is much more valuable to me, where if the oranges are 10% more, I'm, I'm not interested in driving somewhere to go get them for cheaper because um, I'm much more interested in, in conserving my time and often time for, for leisure activities, not necessarily like time to work, but you know, I wanna get home so I can spend time with my kids or go to a nice restaurant and meet my friends or whatever. And so even though I am, more stable, financially stable than my parents were, um, I still carry a lot of those values with me. I mean, even though I'm not willing to drive around to save 10% on oranges, I definitely investigate the best option when it comes to anything, especially a big ticket purchase, whether it's, you know, like we're, we just booked a, a holiday in January, fingers crossed it happens. I, I don't know. We bought insurance if it doesn't, but um, you know, I, you know, I looked at value. Like I looked at all the hotel options. I looked at the location. I looked at the weather and I kind of weighed everything. And for me, I picked uh, the best value. So we didn't pick the cheapest. I don't think people often ignore, uh, um, misunderstand that word for cheapest. We picked what the best value was. So for the money that we're paying, we're getting the best hotel and the best time of flight and the best kind of situation possible and the best weather uh, that we can hope for. So I, that's always shaped me because my, you know, my parents have never been frivolous with their money. They've always, even to, to, to this day, they're very cautious with the way they spend their money and they are financially very stable because of those things, because now all those responsibilities have fallen away and their, their good habits, their good financial habits remain. 
I like how you mentioned the idea of understanding value from your family because my dad's also from an immigrant family. And he, I remember when I was super young, I always used to describe things as like cheap. I, w- I would always use the word cheap. And he's like, well, it's not cheap. It's inexpensive. I think just the distinction between cheap and inexpensive really showed me the value of things as well. And that's something that's always really stuck with me. I feel the same way. And my parents do spend money on things. For example, my dad's very much into photography. So he will spend um, a lot of money on camera equipment, but he'll buy good value. Like he'll buy a a brand name and he'll make sure he researches, you know, the the best product on the market. He could easily go and buy cheaper cameras, but, but he's not interested in that. Like, I do believe that there is a difference between people who are just penny pinchers. I mean, I know it's a really kind of cliche way to put it, but you know, where they just don't want to spend money and people who are value oriented. And then there's those who just, you know, like they want to buy the biggest and best and have the biggest flash in the pan. (laughs) That is, and that's not me even today. Like I'll carry a designer bag, but I'm definitely not going to carry five. You know what I mean? I'm not going to buy five. Right. (laughs) So I'll just buy one really good one. But I have friends who will always have like the latest and greatest kind of designer stuff. But to me, I don't see the value in that. Cause once you have one bag, I feel like you've already kind of made your statement and I don't really need to make the statement over and over again. Would you give us a highlight reel of your career this far? Uh, so I've been a journalist since uh, 1999 when I graduated. Um, I went to uh, York university and then I went and did a postgraduate program at Humber college. And I landed pretty easily at this station called CFMT. It's now called Omni. Um, and I started doing on-air work there. And so for, from there until 2009, I was a news reporter. So I covered everything. Like I did, the program I was first hired on was kind of a weekly magazine program on South Asian issues in the city and internationally and what the local reaction was. And I was coupling that with uh, freelancing at CTV, doing all different types of jobs. And that's something I recommend to young journalists today is that, you know, um, freelancing is a great way to kind of find out what you really want to do, who you really want to be. And then when you are anchoring the news, you know what it takes to like run a run a prompter. You know what it takes to do closed captioning and all these kind of small jobs, which I don't even know what exist anymore. But, you know, you know, you understand the effort that goes into these things and writing copy, right? Like writing copy for anchors is a, is a big thing. I really wanted to, when I graduated first from journalism school, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. So I, I, kind of dip my toe into that world a little bit. Um, after September 11th, I went to I went to Pakistan because my parents were Pakistani. I had a five-year open visa. It was very easy for me to go there. Um, and I just kind of landed there and started looking for work. And I was hired by CTV and then by ABC. And so I got to do a bunch of things uh, there for about six months. And that six months taught me that the last thing I wanted in my life was me to be a foreign correspondent, because <laughs> even though it's an exciting life and you get to do a lot of really cool things, family has always been really important to me. And all I saw around me was broken families. Like most people were multiple divorced, hadn't seen their kids for X amount of time. Many of people were having affairs. And that just to me uh, was not how I wanted to spend my life. But that, that basically what it came down to. And that's what I saw myself becoming if I was to stay in that world, because that's the only way, like no one is going to tolerate a partner being away six months at a time. And like, you know, it, it, it just, in the end, it just doesn't work that way. So that was part of my, part of my decision was that this is really not going to work for my life. So I really wanted to do television. I, that's where I'd started. That's where I was interested in doing. And so um, I got this job at CP24 as the weekend anchor, and I started doing business news um, on the weekdays, which is kind of what was my first sort of foray into business. Breaking news, I realized was not my personality because you get calls at four in the morning, that there's a story that everybody has to be on. Uh, you often were on a story for like 18, 19 hours, like all of this kind of, again, like really just didn't jive with the way that I saw my life being. And I just at the time gotten engaged. And so, you know, we were kind of, my husband and I, our then fiance, were like really trying to like figure out like what we wanted to do as a family and how we wanted to live our lives. And I just was like, I can't work every weekend. And my husband's working Monday to Friday. Like, I just didn't like that, that, that um, situation. It kind of like worked itself out 
for me because my contract wasn't renewed because there was tons of layoffs at CTV and I just wasn't renewed. And obviously it was a big bummer because it was a really big gig and I, you know, I was sort of lost for a while, but I um, had already started talking to News Talk 1010 about doing, uh, they wanted me to come and do like just some freelance work. And so I, I called them and they're like, we'll take you right away as a business correspondent on the morning show. And John Moore's show, even back then was like the number one morning radio show after I believe CBC's or maybe it was rivaling. I, I It was up there anyways. And so to get that gig, 723 time slot to do business news every morning from my home was amazing. Like that was a big, huge step up for me. I started realizing that that's what I wanted to do full time was business and markets reporting. I kind of bumped around a little bit and did freelance here and there. And I started looking for a full time job and then realized like I was getting enough freelance work that I didn't really have to land anywhere full-time and I'd been a little bit traumatized from a couple of gigs that I had lost or job you know and, and my CTV contract not being renewed that I sort of thought if I am freelance then I've got my tentacles in a whole bunch of places and so what if something doesn't work out I've got all this other stuff going along going on I actually think freelance is much more uh, conducive to job security than a full-time job because a full-time job you could just be called in and there's layoffs and that's it you're done but I've had like huge contracts, um, you know, overnight kind of end, but that, you know, it doesn't feel good, but it doesn't matter. I've got other stuff going on that I can focus on. And then also I've got time now to say, hey, I can do more stuff for you. My whatever, if you want to call them clients, but whatever, my other like associations. Um, so I've been doing that now since 2000, like personal finance since 2010. Uh, when I first started, like writing about personal finance, I started this website called alwayssavemoney.ca. I didn't realize at the time how powerful blogging was. And I wish I'd sort of kept it alive because I was ranking number one in personal finance sites for a long time, but I never paid attention to it. I've lost that ranking. I don't even know how to get it back, to be honest. I haven't focused on it at all. But uh, bloggers from that time who really kept their presence uh, alive have been really successful. So that's one of my regrets is that I had a site that was doing really well without me putting much effort. I should have just put more effort and kept it going, but that's, I don't know, here nor there. And so I've just sort of stayed um, on this sort of trajectory of just talking about personal finance. I've worked with brands before. I don't love working with brands. It kind of muddies the waters for journalists uh, when you work with a brand and then they're in the news negatively and you have to talk about it. I really now have started focusing on working with brands when it comes to financial wellness. So, you know, um, creating programs for companies that uh, want to create a financial, which, which doesn't mean I don't really have to speak about their products. I'm basically helping their employees or helping their customers um, be more financially healthy. So, I, I mean, I, I've been freelancing now at CBC seven plus years. I've had a lot of online um uh, it ended recently, but I was there was a company called Homes Publishing. I used to write a column for them for nine years. Uh, Global as well. I've been doing that for five plus years now. And uh, new, uh, AM640. So it's just now I have these sort of long-term regular gigs that I've been freelancing at. And that's kind of where I am today. And I don't really know whether I'll go back to full-time work because it feels like I have to give up a lot to do it. Right. And I want to talk more about um, freelancing and sort of job security, because I would think that it would be more risky to do freelancing, I guess, maybe in the beginning, because you don't like now you obviously you've built up your, your repertoire and everything. But starting out, if you could give advice to listeners that are looking to freelance and do it so that they can feel secure, that they'll have a steady income, what would be your tips? I have a very different kind of point of view when it comes to things like networks and mentoring and um, contacts. So it is very much your personal contacts. Like I could email summer, someone, someone tomorrow and say, Julianne, I spoke to her on this podcast and I really think she'd be great for this. And they would be more than willing to talk to you, but it's your responsibility now to build that connection, right? So if they're not impressed by you, or I'm, not, I'm using you as just as an example, I'm sure they would be. No, that's okay. <laughs> but you know what I mean? So it, it's, there's only so much that others can help you get. And you have to have personal relationships. And when I say that, it doesn't mean you have to be best friends with them and go out with them for dinner and drinks. It means that when they need you to show up for their book launch, you show up and you support them and you show 
um, you know, you show that you appreciate them like in that way. And when they ask you to share something for them on social media, you do it for them. I mean, if you don't want to, then don't do it, but then realize that, you know, that person's probably not going to do it back for you. So I'm not saying it has to be like, um, like, you know, give always has to be give and take. It's a very delicate uh, way that you build your network. So you, and so, and that starts when you're young, it starts in your twenties because the people that you work with in your twenties are going to, you know, go through their career and become managers and executive producers and hosts of programs and anchors of shows. And that I've seen that happen all around me. Like almost everybody that is now anchoring a major show in this city, I know them personally, not in a way that we get together and we see each other all the time. But if I needed to reach out to them to ask them an honest question, they would be more than willing to spend 10 minutes with me on the phone. That's something that social media has kind of destroyed because some people have created these like kind of cliques on social media where you think, you know, you know, I read Mindy Cowling's book, is everyone hanging out without me? Like, that's what it makes you feel like, right? Like, is everyone having fun? The fun is, it, it doesn't matter. What really matters is that people respect you, they respect your work, and that you can access them if you need them, and they can access you if they need you. So it's, it's a give and take. So what I would tell someone who wants to be freelance is that it probably makes a little bit of spend, sense to spend uh, some time working full-time somewhere so that you can build that network. Um, and it doesn't have to be full-time, like a, a permanent full-time job. It can mean working 40 hours a week. That's really what I'm saying. So try to find work 40 hours a week so that you're constantly meeting people, building contacts, um, you know, and developing relationships. If you really do uh, admire somebody, there's nothing wrong with emailing them and saying, I really admire you. I would love to, you know, get some advice from you on X, Y, and Z. Some people don't like that. Sometimes it just takes a little bit of like, you got to just sort of poke that person. It's nothing to do with them not paying attention to you. It's just that they've got other things going on. And so I guess my best advice would be is that spend some time working full-time hours and building those contacts and be nice to everybody. Like your reputation will carry you through your entire career. And people would rather work with someone who is nice than someone who is uber talented. That is like the best thing I can tell anybody. There are so many uber talented people I know who are not working because they're not nice. There's only so far your talent can take you because if people just can't stand being around you, eventually they're just gonna stop working with you. And as a freelancer, you have to like kind of step it up even more. What is a piece of financial advice that you wish someone had told you earlier in your career? Buy blue chip stocks. Okay. <laughs> like, honestly, <laughs> I, I feel like if someone had just said to me, buy big banks and sit on them starting at the age of 20 and you'll be totally fine. I wish I, you know, I mean, in the beginning, my investing was investing knowledge was extremely slim. I mean, even today, I would not call myself some sort of expert. I mean, I really do just do index investing. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, that's basically buying ETFs that follow the performance of major markets like the TSX, major stock markets, the TSX, the, the S&P 500, the Dow Jones, the NASDAQ. That's how I invest. I think that would be, you know, I, I just feel like young people don't realize the power of time. A lot of young people will take risk because they have time on their side. So they're like, I got time to like take a lot of risk, which I think is true. But just, you know, even just the buy and hold strategy, the earlier you get in, uh, the better it's going to serve you. And it doesn't matter what you do. It can be stocks. It can be real estate. It can be wine. I had a long conversation with somebody about how the value of wine can go up, but you need time for it to happen. It doesn't matter. It's just, it's that buy. I think just the buy and hold mentality, the earlier you learn that, uh, the better you're going to be financially. I'm not saying that you shouldn't take some risk because you're young and you know, you have, you have that um, privilege of time to take risk, but really, you know, don't, don't take all risk, like have some part of your um, investments in, in like, you know, I'm going to use this money when I'm 60 kind of thing. So I know we don't have all of the time in the world, but if you could sort of summarize what the gender pay gap is and what needs to be done to eradicate it. 
So the gender pay gap, which I think most people understand, is that if you look at um, any job uh, across the board, that men generally make more money uh, than women in the same job. Uh, so that you could look at CEOs of companies, or you could look at marketing managers, or you could look at journalists. If you, you know, if you do the average of what a woman makes and what a man makes in the same job, I believe it's 86 cents for a dollar. I believe that that's the number. Now, there are a number of reasons why that happens. Um, you know, some people will say oh, it's because women don't step up and they don't, you know, they don't uh, say that they want to raise. That's part of it, probably. But the number one reason is children. And so women take time away to have children that at, at a greater rate than men do. Nine years less in full-time work compared to men. So that nine years less means nine years less of promotion, nine years less of just making contacts, nine years less of all those things that happen when you are just immersed in your career. On top of that, women are more likely to work part-time compared to men. So again, you don't get that same uh, recognition when you're working part-time. And so a number of things have to change. I think they are changing, but the pandemic has really kind of uh, ripped the whole lid off of this whole situation and shown us that, yeah, we've made all these efforts since the 19, whenever, 60s, 70s of, you know, of closing that pay gap, and that is working. But as soon as you take all the supports away, childcare, um, you know, having parents close by that can watch your children, schools, as soon as you take all those away, women are the ones that have to step back in. And so during the pandemic, women have fallen out of the workforce at a greater rate than men. Uh, women are not returning to the workforce as fast as men are, those who have lost their jobs. And number one reason is because someone has to take care of children. You can't just leave them on their own. They have to be taken care of. And so I think that even though we've done a lot of good work towards closing that pay gap, the pandemic has shown us is that a lot of it is still superficial. Mm -hmm. How can we shift the narrative that understanding money is difficult or unusual for women? And what are the best ways and resources for listeners to start managing and investing their money efficiently? So I think it's a fallacy to think that women aren't good at money. I think women, women are the CEOs of most households. They're the ones who make most of the money decisions. So day-to-day -day stuff like groceries and big stuff like what machine, you know, laundry machine to buy, what, what a whole holiday to go on, what kind of car we should buy. So even though their husband or their partner may be the breadwinner, so to speak, the economic decisions about the house are made by women and women are the ones who will... Um, you know, be first to open a, an RESP for their child or be the first to save for a big, you know, event that's coming up. Um, so I think it's more a confidence issue than anything else is that I, I think we have to stop thinking that women aren't good at money because I think they are. And generally speaking, women make better long-term financial decisions than men do. Men sort of have a bravado. This is being a little bit too much gender specific, which I don't like to do. But um, if you very, very much generalize, men have a much more competitive um, outlook. And so if they hear that someone bought Bitcoin and it tripled, they want to <laughs> do the same thing. And if women are kind of like, I don't know, I've got to first check it out and make sure it's safe for me. And that, you know, like, and that, again, I'm being extremely gender specific, but that is just a generalization that I think um, explains why men and women might have a different, uh, we might see men and women differently when it comes to money. So I think it's just a confidence issue. And I think it's also access and online has helped that women no longer have to, you know, take time away to go into a bank and sit and talk to an investment advisor. They can do it all online in their own time. And so I think that, I mean, I, I think just tech, if technology is catching up, uh, for people to be able to bank and invest wherever they are, that is going to close that gap faster than anything else, because uh, women will feel more confident, they won't feel intimidated, uh, because in the intimidation really is created by the people who sell these products, and um, they'll be able to do their own research, so they'll feel more confident even making their own decisions about money. What are your top three tips that every young woman and girl must do when it comes to her finances? The number one thing is to understand that your life experience is going to be different than your male counterpart. So understanding that I think is more powerful than, than anything else. So that number I went back to like nine years outside of full-time work, more likely to work part-time. And then on top of it, women live longer than men. So saving for a longer retirement compared to your, to your male counterpart. So just understanding where your position is, I think is going to be powerful in and of itself. And then also, you know, 
I would never tell somebody when they should or shouldn't start a family. If you, if career is really important to you and it's something that you want to uh, focus on for your life, starting a family young can put a roadblock into that. So I'm not, again, I am not trying to give anybody family counseling or tell them when or when they shouldn't have children. But if you have a child in your early 20s, you definitely are going to miss out on a very key time when you build your career. And so I had my first child at 33, and I felt like that first 13 years really helped me build a solid foundation. I had people that I knew that I could talk to. I had contacts in the industry. I had some money in the bank. I had some money in my retirement fund. All those things were well on their way when I had children. And then taking five, six years away and then eventually becoming freelance anyways after that was an okay transition. So everybody's journey is different, but know that having children is a beautiful experience, but it often is the reason why careers stall because all of a sudden, you know, you can't be at work. And then, you know, it, having the child, it's not just the first year. It's, it is really, I mean, it's not an 18 year commitment. People say, oh, it's 18. I mean, of course you have to take care of your children for your, the rest of your life, but it's really that one to 10, uh, where they need you, like they can't drive, they can't eat, they can't go to the bathroom <laughs> right. on their own. There's so many things that children need that are just like consume your time. Um, and it doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, you can hire like a nanny and a cleaner and you can do all these things if you have the money. But in the end, the parents are the parents. They're the ones that have to do all the work, right? Um, and if you want to be that kind of person that has a lot of support around you, that's fine, but also recognize that you're the one organizing it, right? It's not like you just drop your child off and someone else is going to raise them. You're still raising them. And the other is that when you are in a relationship, uh, doesn't matter who makes how much money, you have to focus on your retirement. You have to, have to, have to, because women spend an average of 10 years alone in retirement because they're widowed and because their husbands die earlier than them or their partners die earlier than them. So you are going to have a point in your life statistically speaking, that you are going to be on your own. And so you need to have money for that. And um, you also need to understand how it works. Like you need to pay the bills and you need to pay your mortgage. And you can't just kind of let somebody else take care of the finances. And then at the age of 75, be like, okay, well now I'm going to be a personal finance uh, wizard. That's not going to happen. <laughs> so you talked a little bit about this previously, but what is your take on investing in cryptocurrencies? So cryptocurrency is like weed stocks or all these other sort of emerging uh, markets that we're not really sure what they mean in our everyday lives. Uh, so for example, it's very easy for us, like Constellation Brands is a company that owns uh, a lot of alcohol labels. So for me to invest in that company, I know that people drink alcohol and I know that these brands are everywhere and I have some confidence in knowing that they're gonna be around for a while. But we don't still understand what the role of weed is going to be 10, 15 right. years from now. So it's the same thing with Bitcoin. It's like, obviously it's working. I mean, there's countries that are now adopting it as legal tender. You can now buy an ETF. I feel like once something you can buy an ETF of it, it's pretty legitimate all of a sudden, but you, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but <laughs> so I, you know, I think that Bitcoin or cryptocurrency of any kind is a interesting uh, idea. I definitely think it has a future because blockchain is the way that we are headed for all different types of transactions. But you have to be aware that you are gambling because we don't know whether it's going to be Ethereum or Bitcoin or Dogecoin. We don't know what's going to emerge or something we haven't heard of yet. And we don't know how we're going to be using it and whether it's going to be the trading platforms that are going to do best or the actual currency that's going to do best or um, a managing software. We don't know, right? Like Amazon right. started as a company that, that sold books. Who knew that it would become what it was? And so mm -hmm. it, even though someone might say, oh, I wish I'd bought Amazon in 1997. Yeah, obviously everyone wishes they had done that. <laughs> but back then it was just a company that sold books and we didn't really know where, where its future was. There was lots of companies that sold books back then. Um, so maybe not online, but still, you know, there was a lot, if you were going to go back to 1997, there was a lot of other things to think about before you were to invest your entire life savings in that. So yeah, invest in it. Just don't invest money that you can't lose or you don't mind going. It's going to be volatile for sure. Just weigh the pros and cons and do not go all in on something that you don't understand what the future of it is. 
In a society of consumerism and fast fashion, plus coming out of a year pandemic when I feel like a lot of people were bored at home and just aimlessly spending, how does one stop the toxic spending? So the number one thing you should do is go into your closet today and add up all the fast fashion you have bought that's hanging in the closet that you no longer wear. It's going to get to $1,000 pretty fast. So all those $10 tops and $20 shoes and whatever that you purchased um, because they were on sale or because you needed them for that one night, just add it up. And that is a you know, it's an eye opener. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't participate in that economy. I definitely like I, I wear lots of fast fashion. So when you buy fast fashion, you can still buy items that you're going going to use for the long term. Like I really don't like the idea of buying like one one time use stuff because I think that's just really bad for the environment. It's bad for your pocketbook. Um, if you're going to buy if you're going to participate in that economy, then realize there's also like an environmental impact and the people who are making those clothes are often not paid very well. But I think if you just, if you, if you focus on secondhand, if you focus on quality items, if you focus on things that will last you longer in the end, that's going to save you money. Like I'm much more of a believer of buying one thing full price that I'm going to use for a long time than 10 things on sale that I'm just going to like kind of cycle through. And then they're going to be in a donation box by the end of the, the season. Um, so I, I think it's, it, I think it's really about your values when you participate, not that I'm saying that participating in fast fashion is bad, but like not recognizing what it's doing to our planet and what it's doing to people's lives is irresponsible, I guess. What is the best way to come up with a budget based on one's income? And is there a specific formula that we should be using? So you always, it's the good old fashioned, you gotta spend less than you make. If that, you know, so if you make 50,000, you can't spend 55. If you make a million, you can't, you know, it, it just comes down to basic math. Um, so whatever it is that you make, always make sure that you do three things. One is that you pay yourself first. It's such a key thing that, you, again, in your 20s that you can learn that will carry you through your whole life is that when you get paid, the first thing you do is you take a, a chunk of money and you put it into long-term savings. I don't even call it retirement savings anymore because people get annoyed with that word. Just long-term savings, money you're going to use decades from now. Um, you put some money, if you haven't beefed up your emergency fund to equal three months of your household expenses, you put some money in that. And then if you've got a big expense coming up, maybe you put some money away for that. It doesn't have to be a, a ton of your paycheck, but I would say 20 to 25% of your paycheck should go towards savings. And then, then you pay all your bills. So you pay your mortgage, your rent, your utilities, your internet, your phone, like you have all the money that you need to, to run your life. And then whatever's left, you can spend it on whatever you want. You can spend it on, you know, a $200 bottle of wine. You can buy a, a dress that you're going to wear once, whatever you want. You can buy whatever you want. <laughs> Fast fashion. Exactly. So you don't, like, I, people who budget like restaurant outings and stuff, I don't really understand that because you have to first take care of all the other stuff. And then people will say to me, well, what if you have nothing left at the end? I'm like, then you've got to understand that maybe you're living a life that you can't afford. Maybe you're living in an apartment where the rent is too high. Maybe you're driving a car that's too expensive. Maybe you're spending too much on energy because you're not energy efficient. So that's when you start to sort of or maybe you're saving too much. Maybe you don't need to put that much money in your retirement. You know, so then you can start tweaking. Um, so that's, I think, a lot, a much more um, natural way to deal with your budget than trying to like, I mean, I see these people like they'll put their budgets up like this much for groceries. I mean, that's fine. I think that that's good to do once in a while. Um, I more like to look at it historically. So I'll go in and say, okay, how much did I spend on groceries in the last few months? And then I try to fix, if, if it's too much, I try to fix it going into the future or try to, you know, minimize, you know, oh, wow, I, you know, I did spend a lot on going out last month. So I should probably, you know, just be a little bit more mindful of not picking up takeout every time I'm, I, I'm, I'm feeling lazy, that kind of stuff. 
Um, and you, you know, you can use, there's lots of online budgets, apps and stuff that you can use, but I really do believe that Excel is the best thing right. you can ever imagine. And <laughs> yeah, because it's so, it's so customized, right? Like your life, financial life is so customized. So download a budget from, you know, um, get smart about money.ca is really good. Um, it's a, it's an Ontario run a website. They've got lots of budgets, student budget, family budget, everything. So you can download that and then you can kind of customize it. Uh, just to work out like how much your life costs, it's kind of good to put it all on paper. Uh, but once you get going, I mean, really just, you know, pay yourself for pay your bills and then spend the rest. It's kind of the way I've always lived my life. What you had said about tweaking a budget versus I feel like there's such pressure to, oh, I have to stick to my budget. I have to stick to my budget. But if you go into it with the mindset of, okay, I'm going to tweak it for every, every month or every two weeks, take a look at how I'm doing. I think it's so much like less pressure and you can actually in a sense become more successful at like managing your budget if you're like okay well let's see how I did two months ago versus now is it still the same do I need to maybe take some things off or add more I think that's a really good mindset to have yeah I mean we have to come to a point where we're spending money in a responsible way naturally it's just like losing weight you can download all the apps you, you know, in the entire world, you can be like 20 carbs or less a day or 1200 calories less. And you can do all of that. But in the end, you have to make it part of your lifestyle. Like you have to be like, when you go out, you just naturally make healthy choices. And so it's the same kind of approach to your finances is that not that you're always thinking about your money, but you just, you just always make better choices about it. And you know, when something is a little bit expensive that you're like, eh, I think I'll pass on that. Or maybe I'll just like, I just had lunch with my daughter. My daughter's only nine. Obviously she doesn't eat very much. So I'm not going to order like two massive meals for us and just like take the rest home and throw it away or whatever. So, you know, I, I always kind of have this, like, like, we should share something. That's kind of like a very superficial example. I just think that if people constantly practice good financial habits, that it just becomes part of who you are and you just naturally, you know, do the right thing with your money and don't feel, um, don't feel like, you know, your credit card bill arrives and you're like, oh my gosh, what did I do last month? That, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Yes, exactly. What is your advice on successfully paying off debt and which debts should you pay off first? You have to pay the high interest stuff off first. So the credit cards, the line of credit, the unsecured line of credit. Um, if you owe money on your utility bills, that can add up really fast because there's a lot of late fees and interest that are charged. If you owe money to the tax man, to the CRA, you should pay that off. So those are the kind of bills you should deal with immediately. Not only are they more expensive, but they have a huge impact on your credit score, which when you go for a loan is really going to matter. My best advice is, is to really just get real about it without sounding like, you know, kind of like a talk show host, but um, you have to sit down and just sort of tally up every kind of debt. So you just, how much money do I owe my credit card? Um, am I overdue somewhere that I owe money? How much money do I owe my friend that I borrowed because I couldn't get my car repaired and I need to, you know, everything, just all put it together. And whatever that number ends up, it's like, okay, I'm $25,000 in debt. Okay. So now you know your number. And then out of that, you strip away the higher interest stuff and pay it off first. And are there places you can talk to people? So if it is your friend, for example, you can probably call them and say, listen, I'm trying to pay off some high interest debt. I know I would pay you. I know I said I'd pay you by the end of the month. Could I pay you by the end of next month? So you just communicate and you can do that with utility companies too, especially now during the pandemic, you can call them and say, I know I'm three months behind. Um, is there any way I could pay part of it and then pay later? So I, I still in good standing and just have conversations with all your, your people, you owe money to all the creditors. Um, that would be my best advice because a lot of people try to sort of, they stumble through their debt. So as like, as the bills come through, they try to deal with them. Why don't you just sit down one afternoon? Like it probably would take you more, like, probably two hours at the most and, you know, just figure out. Every, if I was to try, if I was to die today, mm -hmm. who would come after my estate for all <laughs> my money, right? Just kind of be like that. And then just sort of put it all out there. And what's that number and uh, see, you know, what, you know, if you've got a mortgage, obviously you're not going to pay that off in, in, in a year or so, but you can, you can look at other debt that's just been kind of trickling. Um, how can I just get it off the balance sheet and just, you know, get rid of it? 
So you contributed to a global news article emphasizing that women-owned businesses have been hit hardest during the pandemic. Why is that? And why has it taken nearly twice as long for them to recover from financial setbacks versus businesses that are owned by men? So we talked about it a little bit earlier in the podcast. It's childcare. It really just comes down to childcare. Those women-owned businesses by and large are owned by mothers um, who do not have childcare solutions. And a lot of women that I spoke to for a piece I did for CBC are single moms. So they have that added pressure of like being the only person in that child's life to take care of them. So all the supports fell away and you know, running a business is already a huge burden on your time. And so how do you run a successful business and be a successful parent? And that's why many businesses have shut down. That's why many businesses um, uh, that, you know, were doing very well before the pandemic uh, started have not been able to survive. And the other, other thing is, is that many women-owned businesses are the industries that have been most affected. So restaurants, childcare, uh, smaller shops that haven't been able to open because of different economic rules, uh, you know, restrictions. And so like industries that have been most affected. So this is not necessarily talking about small businesses, but women in, in work industries that have been most affected, hospitality, travel, restaurants, um, childcare places. Um, these are dominated by females. And so these are the places that have been shut down the longest. And so that's why women, whether they're small business owners or whether they are, you know, workers for a company have been most affected by it. And then even if they can go back to work or they can open their business up again, what do they do with their children? If school isn't open, if virtual school is happening, how do you, how do you balance that? And so some women have just decided it's not, it's not possible for them to, to keep running those businesses. I want to highlight or really emphasize what these women-owned businesses have been going through. So if you could talk about some of the realities and challenges that they have faced during this past year, like some of them have had to shut down, what else have, have these businesses experienced? I believe one in six small businesses in Canada has permanently shut down. I read an article in this like insert that comes like a magazine insert in the Globe and Mail, and they highlighted 10 up and coming restaurants of 2020. So obviously they spoke to these restaurants at the beginning of the year. And this magazine was published in the middle of the summer of 2020. And they put a blurb on it, which was the saddest thing I have ever read. Every single one of these restaurants has closed. Stop. Oh my gosh. Every single one of these restaurants has closed because these were all you know, the up and coming restaurant in Vancouver or the up and coming. And these are, I mean, they're not necessarily run by women, but it really does highlight the reality because they were trying to highlight restaurants that were new. And so they didn't have enough time to be established. They did not have enough capital to keep going. And in some cases, they did not have access to the federal programs because you needed to show income the year before and all these other things that just did not allow them to access wage subsidy, rent subsidy, all the other things that were available. And so these restaurants looked awesome. None of them exist anymore. Like 10 out of 10 do not exist anymore. I mean, women have, have been caught up in the same um, issues that they faced their whole lives. I mean, family duty falls on women. And in the pandemic, if you had like, if your mom was able to watch your child while you went to work or you ran your business, all of a sudden that even that option fell away because we were supposed to stay at home and not be in other people's households. And then even if you broke that rule, then you're taking the chance of getting that other person sick and possibly um, having them hospitalized or even worse. You know, it, it really has come down to um, all the progress we've made as women. Uh, when the pandemic started, all, it was sort of torn away all the supports. And what it really showed us is that a lot of it has been superficial. Uh, women's participation rate fell in, during the pandemic to levels of 1986. So as many women were working during the pandemic as we're working back in 86. And so that just, all of those things just, um, I also think there's a psychological factor to it. Women may just want to not go back to work because they're worried about their kids getting sick or their elderly parents. There's that caregiver aspect to it. So all of that has just been detrimental to women's careers and women's businesses during this time. What are the indicators that it's time to ask for a raise? Uh, when your responsibilities change, right? So when you when you join a company, you'll have you know a job spec. There'll be an understanding of how much work you're supposed to be doing. And I wouldn't ask for a raise like 
three months into it. But, you know, if you've been there a year, year and a half, and you know that you've taken on more responsibility, that you're working more hours, you're working harder, I think that that's all legitimate stuff that you can then go to your boss or your manager and say, listen, you know, I was hired as a junior something, but I'm actually doing a work of, you know, a more of a senior something. Uh, is there any possibility of a raise? They don't have to give it to you. This is the one thing I've learned is that often employees, they're just like a budget number. So once they've got that in there, they don't really know how to move that person unless they actually move jobs to a higher, to a higher um, salary. And so if you find that you're not getting any positive feedback about getting a salary raise from your boss or manager, the most powerful way you can raise your salary is to look for another job. And that like you are never in a better position than when you get hired to get the best uh, increase. And I believe like when you change jobs, it's something like 20% is the average that a person will get salary jump. And so it's about being a little bit bold and looking for a new job, maybe. For listeners that are um, freelancers as well, what's the best way and your advice for them to price their services accordingly without feeling guilty? Because I've seen a lot of, you know, posts on social media or even talking to uh, to freelancers they always sense of feeling guilty for you know being like you said bold with you know this is my price and this is what I'm worth so as a freelancer the way I've always approached um charging for certain like to write an article or to do an event I, I honestly it's the company so if it's a big bank if it's a big corporation they've got deep pockets and this is when you should um, really get the most value for your talent, right? So it goes back to that value kind of um, piece where I know that I have something that you find valuable. You are a big corporation. You can afford to pay me more than a non-for-profit. And that's another thing is that I will do stuff for free all the time because I know that uh, I'm not, I don't, like, I would never overcharge a small company that's just starting to get their, you know, they get things going, um, just because I feel like I can get away with it. If you are uncomfortable asking, you can ask them, what's your budget for this project? Um, and then in that, in that budget, ask them, what's the scope of work? What's my commitment? Like ask all those very specific questions. Um, you will start to understand the market, um, after, you know, working, like what, what companies pay and what's appropriate to ask. And just be prepared that if you do go a little high, that they might say no, right? And so then you've kind of learned your lesson that might, that might have been a little high. But again, you know, talking to peers of, of what they think companies should charge. And, you know, when I remember Google once asked me to do the seminar and they wanted me to do it for free. What? So they were like, oh, it's for the exposure. And I'm like, ah, no. No, like, thanks, absolutely Google. Not. <laughs> yeah, like I don't, I, I don't even, I don't even care that I'm putting them on blast because it was so frustrating when I got that email because it was a really like really great email like we want you to come in and talk about women and money and how women I don't know it was something to do with women empowerment I'm like all right if you want to empower women why don't you pay the woman that's going to come empower them like <laughs> exactly. I was like oh, you could find someone else then thank you very much and you know in the end maybe some people would have been like that was really foolish of you you should have done it and then maybe that would have led to something fair enough but I just didn't like the way that they made it sound like um, oh, the exposure. I'm like, what exposure am I getting? I'm going to speak to your employees. Really frustrating. And that, that's happened with other companies too. But then there's been like smaller companies that have just offered a really nice, you know, bit of money for work that I thought, wow, that's, that's really generous of them. It just shows you that, you know, you are valuable when that happens. Mm -hmm, for sure. So for each episode, I always ask, what does your career mean to you? And you obviously wear a lot of hats given your repertoire and your resume. So if you could explain what your career means to you. As much as people say you shouldn't identify yourself with what you do, I really do identify myself with my work. My work really is a big part of my identity. Being a mother and a wife and a friend obviously is extremely important to me, but I have always been um, very much attracted to the flash of being able to speak on the radio and be on television and write articles and have people recognize your name. I absolutely crave that. And that is one reason I know I could never work in a traditional corporate job because you don't get that. You don't get that kind of um, uh, affirmation day after day. And so my job means a lot to me. Like it really means a lot when 
when you reach out and say, hey, I'd love to talk to you. It means a lot when someone says, I read this article and I really got this out of it, or I saw you on TV. It's a huge part of my identity. It's, it's a, like, and I don't know whether I could do anything else. I'm not, I'm not embarrassed to say that. Like if somebody is a lawyer and they love being a lawyer, they should say that. They should say they love, they love being in a courtroom and they love, you know, um, cross-examining people. They should say that. <laughs> I don't really get this whole, like, you're not who you are at work. I'm like, I think you are. I think that's a huge part of your life. And so there's nothing wrong with, with owning that and like being proud of it. That's what my career means to me. I mean, it's a really huge part of my identity. It's something I love talking about, not in a braggy way, but in a way that I'm, I'm proud of what I do. And I love that maybe it helps some people with their money. Um, and I love the subject. Like I love personal finance. I love workplace. And um, if I was to go back and ever do, people ask me before, what, what would you do if you weren't doing? doing this, I would become a labor lawyer. Like I definitely love helping people. And I think that comes down to like money and work. Like I just love helping people understand their, their job and their finances better. Last question for you. What's currently making you excited and what are you looking forward to? So I'm really, like I said in the beginning, I'm really starting to focus on financial wellness because I think after the pandemic, mental health, physical health, and also financial health are going to be paramount because a lot of people are going to come out very bruised from what's happened in the last 18 months or maybe even two years or however long this is going to take. And so uh, I, I'm really excited about focusing on programs that really help people's financial wellness help them feel better about their money, no matter what salary they make, help them understand why they make certain financial decisions, how to unlearn some of the bad things that uh, we do with our money. Not bad, I think bad might be the wrong, but some of the, some of the detrimental ways that we spend our money. And uh, to be less superficial, like I just want people to be less superficial. I don't want people to be so obsessed with like what we wear and drive and where we live. I want people to really just see their money as adding value to their lives in a more holistic way that you know if you have if you make a good salary you're able to entertain every weekend and spend time with your friends and if you make good money you're able to buy things for your children that make them happy like see money more as that than uh, oh I arrived at this party with this like really great bag and all these strangers like stared at me I I just really hope that after the pandemic we can get away from living that kind of life. Cause I, I, I've always found it gross and I even more so now. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to support is by liking, following, rating, and reviewing on Apple music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am entirely grateful to those that have already left a review or have reached out to me. And if you're wanting more tips and content from each episode, be sure to follow on Instagram at her podcast. New episodes are released Tuesdays, so turn on your notifications for the platform that you listen to so you don't miss an episode.